This presentation is from Service Design 2016, held in Melbourne in March. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. So, I've been, um, I've known Seb for quite a long time. We don't know each other well, but I've known you for a fair, fair while. Um, I first came across your work at... When you're at the, the powerhouse yes. and that all that you know super cool tagging stuff, uh, when yeah. I know when tagging was brand new, and I'm an information architect primarily, and a you know information architect geek, so that was pretty cool. And I also like totally love museums and love museum collections, so I've been a bit of following a bit of what you have been doing, and I think the Centre for the Moving Image is like the best place in Melbourne. So, like, now we can combine all of those things and hear about your work there. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Heath. Thanks. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk a, talk a bit about, like, from the 64 through, in fact. So I'm going to go way back in time, but not perhaps as far, far back as the 84. So I'm, I'm here now, but I've only just moved here. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the stuff I'm doing here, but more about the stuff I've done in other places. So you've probably been here, if you live, live in Melbourne, you probably saw the Bowie exhibition, Stacks of People Did. You might have visited Game Masters, which Stacks of People Did too. Uh, we have you know, Tomb Raider, as well as all those other things. We have... Um, uh, way, way of kind of the exploding fist actually playable in the galleries now. Uh, but I'm going to go way, way back to some of that work uh, that I was doing at Power, Powerhouse. And really this talks a bit about how museums are turning on to the need for you know, um, design kind of strategy and exploring service kind of design as a model for their whole organisation. And that's sort of what my uh, role is now in Melbourne. So I was at Powerhouse. I did a lot of work for other, other places, including the Edge, up in Queen, 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 Queensland. My small teams at the Powerhouse made lots and lots of web stuff, uh, lots and lots of it over many years, lots of in interactive games and apps and semantic web stuff. We did lots of work on big exhibitions, dense exhibitions. We did, Im did immersive video experiences and all sorts of stuff. And whilst all of those kind of things were very successful, most of those projects existed in their own domains. They were made by small teams, either within the museum. So these projects, uh, museums are very siloed places, and these, these projects existed in their own dom domains. And the trouble is the end kind of users of these projects on the web or in the galleries were actually the same kind of you know, people. So they, we, we had different kind of teams designing the exhibitions, different, different teams making our websites, different kind of teams working on the, inter, the, inter, the interactive experiences that you used within the galleries. So in around two, 2005, ideas like this were really popular. This is from a Dutch kind of report of the future of museums being about moving the stuff they have out into the net, 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 uh, network, putting things on the web, but not own, only putting things on the web, but connecting those things on the web from Museum A to the things in Museum B and Museum C and Museum D. So if we, if we have T-Rex uh, you know, bones in Melbourne, there's other museums with T-Rex bones, so wouldn't it actually be cool to bring all the T-Rex bones together virtually? So t 2005 at the Powerhouse doing a lot of digitisation. One of the very first projects that got a lot of success for the Powerhouse was re redesigning the collection. 
So uh, this involved a lot of uh, tag, tagging and making all the database, this museum database of all the stuff that you don't get, you get to see when kind of you visit a museum visible and explorable, but also kind of dull, because seeing images of things is not actually the same as seeing the things physically, right? But these got a huge social, social pickup. So this is a story of this comb that kind of the, uh, that kind of the museum had, and um, that had been catalogued by the, by the museum in a series of ways, talking about Spanish culture, beauty and hair, hair care. And we added user, user tagging very early on when user tag, tagging was a thing. And suddenly somebody came in and added a tag, which was in fact the URL. And that URL, when you followed it, linked that comb, that physical comb, to the did, did digitised newspaper record of that comb being collected by the, by the museum in 1955. So this is now all in trove now, but it's that sense that users were starting to show the museum that they not only knew, knew things about combs, but they also could help us connect our data sets up to other, to other data, uh, data sets. Um, my, my team's got very interested in how users were using things, so uh, we, we, we started doing work like this. This was looking at the most cut-and-pasted cut and paragraphs of museum con uh, content done uh, cut-and-pasted by school kids. So looking at the ways we wrote and created material uh, and wrote it specifically for users. The problem with all of that was, whilst it was data-informed data and content kind of driven, it wasn't context-aware, right? We, we didn't really pay much, much, much attention to the con context in which people might actually use this, this sort of stuff. We built other projects like this... Um, this, in, this, in, this encyclopedia and data uh, browser that worked across multiple data sets held by different museums in New South Wales and built these explorers and, and that was fine as a tech, technical experiment but at the end of the day also pretty dull. We also did um, some, some AR experiments, some mobile experiments. Uh, we actually did the first AR app in a uh, museum which was really great, except there was no prompt to use it out in the world itself. Our curators spent a lot of, a lot of time building mobile tours, mobile tours of the city, again, without prompts and thoughts to what, what might actually get, some, get someone to you know, download the app and use it. We, we, we even did um, uh, geospatial story, uh, storytelling. So this, this was a... Um, a uh, location-based game that rolled out in uh, 2010 that told kind of a migrant a kind of story in Chinatown, and it was linked to to, to an exhibit in Sid, Sid, uh, in Sydney, and you began your trail at the powerhouse, but no uh, no one had actually thought about the signage needs or the on kind of the boarding needs to get someone to actually want to leave kind of the museum and do what is a 20-minute story in the neighbouring suburb. So these uh, projects never really f f reached kind of their potential because they never addressed the context and the specificities of that context of use. And it, this, this started to come to the fore when we started to see people bring mobile devices. You know, we, we're talking about the age 
to this about 2008, 9, when mobile devices in museums were in fact new. And so my teams again started doing a lot of tracking of how people use kind of things. This is a Wi-Fi uh, usage uh, map of a gallery space. So look, look, looking at the ways um, the the uh, dwell time of visitors in particular spots within the galleries. Except the ex exhibition de design teams were siloed from the teams generating this sort of data. So this sort of data never got to change the ex exhibition de uh, design, the, build, the, the building of walls, the layout of exhibit spaces. Uh, we, we built parent-focused parent school, school, school holiday planners that became apps. We, we, we built these iPad interactives. And this, uh, this is kind of fun because it... it oh, this... Uh, oh, damn, it's supposed to be the video. Anyway... This was a little video that we made of tracking the way school, school, school kids were um, mag magnetised by the screens and would gather around the eight screens in the middle and ignore the rest of the exhibition. <laughs> and so putting te technology into the museum had this effect that had effects on other parts of the, the, the exhibition experience. So in 2011, I left kind of the, the powerhouse to try some, some, uh, something new, which was at the Cooper Hewitt, which is uh, the Smithsonian's designed kind of museum in New York. So they hired me to uh, basically help, um, help them re rebuild the museum with uh, digital at its core. So the museum's two, two blocks north of the Guggenheim, which, which creates a lot of challenges because the tourists who make up the visitors, most of the visitors, about 80% of the visitors to the Met, MoMA um, and the Guggenheim kind of have run out of money by the time they reach the Guggenheim. And they're really tired because they've visited at least two other you know, museums in their trip. So they turn, turn around and go back to their hotel room. Um, this building, too, used to belong to Carnegie. It was his private house. And so the building itself had been designed as a private residence and been designed physically to keep people out. It hadn't been designed as a great, great, great public square. So we pulled the whole thing apart. Um, of course, it had a preservation order on it, so we had to put it all back to, um, together again. Um, but it was quite a small museum. And, and really, the reno reno renovation was about trying to make the building work as more of a more of a uh, more of a uh, public space. The collection that it had was kind of odd for a design in a museum too: bird bird cages, buttons, wall wall wallpapers, cer ceramic animals, strange ceramic animals <laughs> that animate well as gifts. Gifts and um, when Fast Company in, in, in interviewed Bill Mogridge, who was the direct director of the museum at the time, um, they were extremely critical of the of kind of the museum and were very critical about Bill. How are you going to take this house with this weird stuff and turn it into a museum that might actually attract not only designers but sponsors and supporters? Um, and you're part of the Smithsonian as well. So the Smithsonian's the largest public, uh, public museum complex in the world, let, let alone the US. Um, yet the building and the collection were not really su suitable for that. 
Um, so, but it also had an amazing contemporary collection, so graphic, uh, sort of graphic kind of des uh, design products that it had been collecting since the 80s. Um, and when I started, I uh, started collecting software for the collection, so design uh, as soft software. So this is an app called Planetary. Uh, it was one of the first iPad apps. It's a music player app. It downloaded about seven, seven, seven million times. Uh, we collected the source code for it as well, uh, so you can actually step kind of through the different versions of the app and see the changes that kind of the um, um, designers made. Um, also collected things like this. This is a 3D print, print, printed vase that had been collected by the decorative arts team. Uh, my team came, came, came in and said, well, look, this is one of 10, but if we're going to teach de de design in the future and use things, um, things um, like this to explore the way 3D printing works or the way uh, cer uh, ceramicists worked with 3D design tools in the early uh, 21st century, we also need to collect the source code for it. So again, collecting source, source code as a way of... Um, Making uh, the, making the kind of their collection come alive. So the museum, pretty small physically, but a lot of stuff, a hell of a lot of stuff. Um, and I kind of knew when I arrived there at the end of 2011 that all of that stuff by the uh, you know by the time the museum reopened should be available on kind of line in high kind of resolution for for free. So the general rule in museums, in, in museums of art at kind of least, is you need to come and see the real thing because there's nowhere else to, uh, to see it, which works for some of us. But for a, for a, for a museum of somewhat quirky stuff, um, you know, we really need, needed to have a very strong reason for physically visiting because everything we had should, should be available on kind of line for, uh, for free. When I started there, only 4.7% of the collection had actually been photographed. Uh, by the time I left, 94% uh, 94, uh, 94 of it had been done. And also we started to realise as we, we uh, went that the design museum was kind of a specific thing, that a design museum wasn't necessarily about stuff, it was about the stories of the stuff and the, the choices designers make and the human de de decisions in the making. So we needed the building to also work as a storytelling machine in many, many ways. So it's restored and it looks like this. Um, this is the foyer of the place. Um, it's beautiful, it's ornate, and we have a problem. And we knew this, this was going to be a problem back in 2012. Uh, so this is a view from 20, late 2014 when it reopened in December 2014. Um, and this is this. So in museum studies, there's this idea of threshold fear. So we know how to behave. If you visit museums a lot, you know how to behave in museums. But a lot of, a lot of people, um, the, the research in America, um, there's one anecdote from American research that says if a child hasn't visit, uh, vis, uh, vis, uh, visited a museum by the time they're eight, they will never visit a you know, museum. Um, and museums kind of are threatening places. You don't know whether you're allowed to run or be quiet or what you're supposed to do, all that sort of stuff. So you learn the way to behave within these spaces. But you need to vis visit them to learn that way of behaving um, acceptably. And interestingly, having worked in a science museum, people behave very diff different, differently in a science museum. You take those kids and put them in a museum of art, 
they're suddenly quiet and they're slow and like what happened? Um, so anyway, uh, Michelle Obama was the patron for the, uh, for the, for the museum, which was kind of cool. And when she launched another um, museum in New, uh, New, uh, New York, she called this out. You know, she calls out the race and class issues behind who is excluded from these public spaces, or what are supposed to be public spaces. And, you know, again, we're in this old house with a steel spiked fence that we can't change. Uh, but we knew that if we could put tech, tech, technology within the building, those who we got through that door, we could upend their ideas about how um, they could and perhaps should, should behave within the space. We also knew that if we rolled out a bunch of apps, uh, that would also change the way people engage with each other within that space. So the challenge that we posed to a series of design firms and our own teams in-house was really this, that we needed to communicate in that moment, the onboarding moment of the museum visit, that on, 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 onboarding couple of minutes when you step into that foyer pay, and, and, pay, and pay your ticket, we needed to give visitors explicit permission to play. We needed to tell them, despite the, you know, the, uh, the ornate wooden panelling, that they were allowed to do things that they didn't think they were allowed to do in that sort of place. Uh, we knew also if we wanted to, to attract families, we needed to, in to ensure that the interactive experiences that we had were purposely social experiences. Uh, we needed to give visitors a way to, to remember their visit. We wanted people to have a look-up experience. This sense that to have a family of four all looking at a museum app or looking at their own phones was not awesome. Not awesome for each other, but not awesome for others in that space too. Um, and, um, you know, we look, 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 looked a lot at Mona and, in fact, we got David Walsh to come and speak to the staff in uh, the Cooper Hewitt, and we realised from the Mona, ex uh, the Mona experience in Ta Tasmania that the reason Mona really works is it's designed beginning to end, but also the tech tech technology within it is, the, is ubiquitous, and it's the default way of experiencing Mona. You don't need to use it, but it's there and it's included and it's free. And if we, and if we were going to make this work, it needed to be ubiquitous too. And I'd done enough mobile apps previously at the Powerhouse and advised many other museums on them as well. And, and the biggest challenge for mobile experiences in museums is the take-up rate is good if you reach about 10%. And that is for a free app. Um, the download experience is ter terrible, also all those, those other things. So anyway, if it was going to work, it needed to be u uh, u um, ubiquitous. So we worked with, uh, with an experienced kind of de design firm in New, uh, New York called Local, Local Projects. And in uh, uh, early, in mid kind of 20, 2012, uh, Jake Barton, the principal of Local Projects, ring, rings me up and says, Seb, we're going to pitch this crazy, you know, crazy idea. Um, we think it's really good, but we don't think uh, kind of you're going to go for it. So we've got a backup kind of one, two. And I'm like, Jake, come on, we're going to do this, this great idea. Um, and he's like, well, Seb, we're going to give everybody a pen. We're going to, because you're a design in a museum, so we're going to give everybody a pen, and that's going to mean that they put their phones away and it's going to work, and you're going to be able to draw things and save, uh, save things with it. 
But most, most, most importantly, when you get given that pen, it's going to communicate to you as a visitor or user of kind of the museum that design is for doing. You've come to the museum to do things rather, 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 rather than just look at things that other, that, that other people have done. And somehow we managed to get that through. And so we were on this path of designing a museum around this idea of giving visitors a pen when they came into the door. Fortunately, that was not super foreign to the museum's collection, at least. So the collection before the, Smith, uh, the, Smith, uh, the Smith, uh, Smithsonian acquired it was housed at Cooper Union, one of the universities in uh, New York. And when the collection was originally pull, pulled, pulled together, all those cer uh, cer uh, ceramics, bird cages and other things, it was a teaching collection. So this is a photo of the collection being used in the 1920s. So it fitted the narrative, the organisational narrative. But as it turns out, making a pen from that beautiful slide with um, uh, some uh, generic art uh, ends up being really hard. Um, and so it ended up that we did this big consortia and we actually made this piece as a piece of co-design working with uh, mul 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 multiple firms. There are actually about 16 firms involved in the end. Um, funding from a lot of places, a lot of help from Adobe, from Google, or, or, or Autodesk, 3D systems and Bloom, uh, you know, Bloomberg philanthropies. But for a lot of time, the only reality for that thing, that product that we wanted to exist, uh, to exist was that nice slide. So at the end of 2013, we spun our wheels for a bit, not really gone anywhere. Um, uh, I was like, look, the, the pen cannot just be this fictional thing. We have to go some, uh, somewhere with it. So my team did this little story, uh, storyboard to build support within the, within the museum and to explore how a pen might actually work to take all of that piece and say, look, we can't just give visitors a pen. There's a lot more to it than that. So this is a little uh, two-minute video that um, was using our staff to model what might happen. And this became the reality for the pen for another year follow uh, following. So this video was meant to play to visitors when they came into the door. That was the con uh, con uh, concept for it. So you get your pen at the desk, Security guards can identify you because it's, it works as a tick, ticket. This is how you would use it. You use one end to collect things. And you could collect all sorts of things. And then you could come back to these big social tables. And you would have some kind of sign-in process. And then you could do stuff with, with the things that you'd seen. Um, and then you could save all of those things somehow. So how, how do we connect the pen to the user? And what do you do when you've done that? How do we communicate you don't kind of need your phone? The other end of the pen, what can you do with that? Can you create three-dimensional things? Can you draw wallpapers? Can you project wallpapers? All this sort of stuff. How do, um, how do we communicate that double-ended piece? How, how kind of do we get the pens back at the end of the visit? And then what happens? What, hap what happens when you go home? How are you prom prom uh, prompted to get back to your collection. And then what happens the next kind of time you visit? So this became the reality. And the fidelity of that 
was a little bit more than that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that initial slide, but it was the key piece in raising money for it, but most, most, most importantly, under, un, un kind of picking all the complexity around getting that to work within the exhibit, within the exhibit design context and the interactive design con, uh, con, uh, context as well. So from there, um, it's, it's, it's coming up to a year out from reop reopening the museum, and we still don't have a physical pen. Like, we haven't made this thing, and we're like, surely a device exists. Uh, it doesn't. Um, and so um, we ended up working with GE for two days, and we did a product, um, we did a product sprint with uh, GE. Uh, which was great because we had on our board of the museum we had um, the GM the GMO of GE and and Beth Comstock was like look we can give you access to our product team they'll come up with this they'll make it work for you somehow we don't quite kind of know how but if we do two two days in New York with you guys we can probably figure it out and and we kind of did. Uh, then we worked with School of Vi Vi Visual Arts to do a whole bunch of stuff around that return process. How do we get those physical devices back from people? Uh, we 3D printed a bunch of stuff. There's a prototype from a firm in Spain on the left. We wanted it to be more like the sharp, sharp, Sharpie on the right. And we ended up with a thing that's like the green thing in the middle. So out of that product, uh, that product sprint, that two-day uh, two sprint, we came up with some key, key um, issues we, we needed to address that we hadn't really thought about. The battery charging time, how are staff going to be able to get them out on the floor reg reg regularly enough? Does it need to be charged daily? Does it need to... We, we were like, look, if we charge, uh, charge it daily, it's going to be a disaster. We need it to last at least a month. Uh, we got it to uh, 28 days in the end by using trip, AAA batteries. We needed to have this desire, uh, des uh, desirability to it, so it needed to look really good. Um, we had this ish issue in New York where people are always washing their hands, they're obsessed with being clean. And when you go to museums, people actually ask, has this been cleaned? So we needed to have a sanitation pro uh, 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 strategy for it. Um, and it needed to work better than a smart, a smart a smartphone. Otherwise, people would just get out their phones and take photos of things. So we ended up actually making the thing. And this, this as I talk, I'll show you one actually being made in uh, Taiwan. Um, it's actually, I have one here in my pocket. So it's actually a physical thing, right? So we made this all in about nine months, um, 3,000 of them. Um, and it kind of works, and manufacturing's insane. Like, I, I can't believe how we were able to make this in uh, nine months. It was really like making web, websites in 1995 was. It was like magic, except you can do this now, and it's not expensive. Um, anyway, um, so what is it? It's kind of this. It's actually a, a capacitive stylus at one end and an NFC reader at the other end. So this is it, um, NF, NF, NFC reader at one end, very robust tech, uh, technology capacitive stylus at the other end. And this is the video that now plays in the foyer of the museum to communicate how it's used. So we took that UX video, that very early prototype video, and this is what it now is. And you can now see that we've changed the message, message, messaging in that. It vib vibrates when, when, when you collect things. You can do all this sort of stuff. We've, we're clear, uh, clearly communicating what, what you can do with it. The return piece is there, 
but really we've solved that email problem by putting information on the ticket. So your ticket has a, U has a URL on it now or a secret code on it that allows you to get that. And actually the challenge switched from collect collecting the pens to getting people to keep their ticket. Because if they threw away their ticket, they wouldn't have access to all their stuff. So this is actually a video of it being used in the museum. So you get an, you get an idea now. So the design museum, you come in and you've got ac ac access to these big 84-inch 80, 4K resolution tables. You can draw things. You can search by drawing shapes and patterns. It'll just pull up things. There's no text entry at all, no vir virtual, uh, virtual keyboards or any of that nonsense. Um, they cater for six, six kind of to eight users at once. You can go up and touch any, any, um, anything in the museum to save, 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 save it. You can bring it back to the tables to explore it in more de detail. You can use the other, the, other, the, other, the other end of the pen to do 3D modeling and draw things. And of course, because that pen is connected to your ticket, um, you can hit save on the interface, um, as this person just about to do, and it will be saved to your ticket. T ticket automatically. So interfaces done by local local projects. They're really playful. They're really generous. They're all based based around browse, uh, browsing with that very large collection rather than searching. Um, it vibrates to give people instant feedback, so they don't have to look at it, which was super super important. Again, because it was a, a historic house style museum, the av the average age of the visitors previously was over fifty five. So what was really interesting about this was we had 80 year olds loving the pen as much as people who were eight because there wasn't a screen. There was no app, there was no, um, no screen, you just got it and it just worked. So Cooper Hewitt's just, just released the data for the first 12, 12 kind of sort of months of use. You can actually uh, download the, in the entire usage file um, and play with journeys and paths and that. Four million ob objects have been collected by visitors to the museum in the first year. Uh, Rob, Rob Stein, another muse, uh, museum tech, technologist at another museum, started to graph that data that was released, and you can start to see the usage patterns of that. Um, you can see it also by types of things people collect. Um, but really, the tech, technology that was designed for the exhibitions turned that collection from an experience of looking into an experience of collect, uh, co collecting, a little bit more like a, more like a uh, library. So the wallpapers, again, because you have a pen, uh, we, have, we had this immersion room, which was a space where you could use the other end of the pen to draw and create wallpapers, as well as browse the wallpapers in the collection. Uh, pretty cool. And this space um, became the signature spot in the, in kind of the, new, uh, in the new museum and really had no real wallpapers in it at all. It was turning this sort of experience of the digitised wallpapers into one where you get a sense of how those wallpapers would have affected the mood in a room and communicated much, 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 much more about the process of designing wallpapers probably than any, 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 anything else we did. Um, so beautiful things, bacon and egg wallpapers, all sorts of stuff. Um, the first year, 123,000 of those wallpapers have been saved now, you don't have to save all the things you, you create. The number created would be about 20, 20, 20 times that. Of course, they're very much shared. And the museum visit length, before the museum closed in 2011, used, used to be about 40, 40 minutes. 
Uh, because you get the pen at the start of your visit, you give it back at the end, 110 minutes now. Um, so the complexity of designing that, um, my colleague Aaron Cope just did this uh, the other day for another presentation. Um, he's also now left. Um, was co the complexity of the system of the pen was insane. So we had the manufacturing of the pen. We had all of the the reader boards and, NF and um, the NFC inf 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 infrastructure that had to be designed and built as well by another firm. We had the tables and the interactive experiences on those tab tables that needed to, uh, to be made. We needed to have check-in and check-out experiences designed and made. And all of this ran off an API that we built in-house. Um, so it's built on the philosophy of the web, so open arch architectures, um, everything running through the API, and again, much as the data set, that user data set has been released. Imagine anonymizing all of the Mikey data across Vic, 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 Victoria and PTV, releasing that data for people to use and learn, learn, learn from. That's what Cooper Hewitt's done. The, the API itself is public. Uh, people have built things with it. People can continue to build things with it. And this is sort of the pen's user journey throughout the museum. So as we'd done maps of the customer journey or the user journey of the, the human user, we also needed to do these user journeys of the devices and the things them, uh, um, themselves throughout that and the way it all connected uh, together. So all of this is all on the kind of line the Cooper, the Cooper Hewitt Labs blog documented all the successes and failures. So when you come back after you visited the museum, um, you used to get hit with this, this screen. It's now changed, uh, fortunately. But we were, very we, we were very conscious that people needed to visit the museum anonymously. So we wanted to get rid of that pairing of the e e email address with a museum vis uh, vis uh, vis uh, vis uh, visitor. So you can completely just keep your ticket and um, uh, log, uh, log in without creating an account or telling us who you are. So again, you get this, you get all your stuff, and all those things that you, you designed, your two-dimensional wall, wallpapers, you can download as vec vector files. And if you've done chairs or uh, three-dimensional models, uh, you can actually get uh, 3D models, uh, 3D files that you can actually print. Um, you can, of course, um, just hearing the previous speaker talk, uh, talk about getting yourself out of a system, you can download and or delete your data from us as well. The Cooper Hewitt designed the system so you could extract everything, you could come to the museum, use it and remove yourself com um, completely. Um, and the museum was very gen uh, generous too, so you could get all the stuff, high, sort of high-ish resolution images of things, all of the data around things that you'd seen, uh, all the data around people, designers, all connected up, all those videos that you wish you could watch later on because you don't have time in a museum to actually watch, all the videos are on kind of line as, line as well. Again, stable URLs, they don't dis, dis, disappear when that, when that exhibition's finished. Um, and connected outwards, so very much connect, connected to other museums as well. So if you had seen works by Designer X, and Designer X was also at MoMA, we would tell you that. Rather, rather, rather than say you visiting our museum was a, a closed system, it was like you are interested in design, so we will point you to other places that you might also want to go to. Uh, lots of in interfaces, again, on the web around browsing, so we did some colour stuff, all of that. So um, in museums, the return rate to museum websites after a visit is generally very, very low. 
Um, basically, no one has cracked uh, that. Uh, about 28% of all visitors who use the pen come back to the website afterwards. Um, so that's that's pretty high for in the in the in the uh, museum space. That's the con, um, con, um, con, um, con, um, conversion rate, I guess. Uh, but really, it, it was the people, not the tech tech technology, that made it work. So my team's did a lot of work with the security guards and all of the front of house staff to make that human experience around the pen work. Also, the design of the pen, the physical size and shape of the device, uh, meant that it was big enough that people could see others using it and they would learn from each other. So unlike if we were all walking around the museum with a phone, we don't know if we're using, checking, using the museum app or we're checking our e email or sending a tweet and you don't interrupt people. But when you have a pen, visitors would say, oh, you use it like this, and they would help help each other. So it had these nice affordances to the design of it, the physical design. Um, so getting this through the museum process and all of that was really about um, this, 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 this idea from Mike Corral's um, who worked with the strategy firm we worked, 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 worked with uh, on this project. It was we needed to build consent to try stuff ra rather than consensus design decisions. Um, we, we, we had to launch this mu museum in a short period of time, but this sort of became a mantra within the uh, team. Um, and it was never finished. So the first week, the pen goes live, and it's a disaster. Everything breaks, like everything breaks. Um, because it's the first time it's out in the wild. And, you know, museums are used to launching the, these exhibits with fancy, fancy stuff and, you know, VIP, VIP, VIPs and big, big dinosaurs and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is that the, the first weeks, everything breaks. And we knew this was going to happen. Um, and so we, we'd, we'd had to work with all of the, the museum staff to get them ready to not take a holiday. So in museums, what happens is you launch an exhibit and then all the staff go on holidays. And in fact, the service has just gone live, so no one should go on hol um, holidays for the first six months. That's not going to fly. But anyway, so lots and lots of things. Um, and a lot of the challenges with the pen were not actually with the visitor's end of the, the, the experience, but the experience for the front of house staff giving the pens out. So very, very, uh, very, very quickly, uh, Katie Shelley, who was on my team, redesigned the interface for the visitor services, the ticket selling staff, to pair the pen with the tickets more effectively and efficiently. Um, and we rolled that out. Um, this sort of initial cu cu customer service uh, user, ex user experience map was, was very much based on somebody spending a couple of minutes with each visitor. But the reality in a museum is you've got a queue of 20 people trying to get, get in, and what are you going to cut? You're going to cut giving the, the, showing them the way the pen works. So we need, needed to speed that up. Uh, we started doing things like printed cards, and we found that the first printed cards that we had were a disaster. So they didn't communicate the right things, they had too many words on them, and they confused people and all this sort of stuff. They, they looked nice, and they had a place to stick your ticket so you didn't lose it, but no one understood what, what, what they were on about. So again, Katie did a lot of work with the visitor services stuff, those front of house ticket sellers, and got them to mock up there and vote on their ideal messaging for the card. So rather than the museum's mess, mess, me, me, messaging, having the ticket sellers co-design 
the uh, collateral that they gave gave out. So it ended up the second uh, version of the card again print, printing is super 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 cheap. Switch to this. So fewer words, key messages being about how to use it, and also saying it is your diary gave it really it meant some uh, something more to uh, the um, visitor than saying your collection. Um, and, and that it, and that and that iteration can, uh, continues on today. So all of that, all of all of the things I've said are all on a line at labs.cooperhewitt.org. Won a hell of a lot of awards, which was great. It won a lot of design awards and all these sorts of things. But the reality of this is, it won the design awards for the trivial stuff. You put a pen in a you know museum. It didn't. There's no awards for the complexity of the system design behind making this physical thing a reality. This is nice, but the complexity and what actually is impressive is the complexity of the system behind it. So what are we doing here? Not quite sure yet, um, but we did some work with MELD and they've been map uh, mapping out again visitor journeys and challenges within the building. Um, and as we're planning the next phase of the main, uh, the, the galleries there, we're really trying to do this. We're trying to build this house in the middle of a flowing, in the middle of a flowing kind of riv, uh, river, so it can adapt and change. The way that uh, the exhibits are built to date has been about deploying fixed things that do not change. Um, so really, service, uh, you know, service kind of design is really now in museum spaces about org change. It's about ch change, change, changing the way the organisation works. And this is terribly confronting in museums because it's starting to make them much, 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 much more user-focused fo uh, rather than collection and preservation-focused. Uh, but that's what it's about. So thanks, thanks a lot. Um, the font... That I used is open sourced as well. Uh, it's the Cooper Hewitt's corporate font. We did a rebrand, and part of that was op open sourcing the typeface. Um, so go and use use it. It's kind of cool. So there you go. Thanks. Sure. Right. Okay. Cool. So we've got about ten minutes for questions. So who wants to start? Thanks for the presentation. I've had a few discussions with people in my organisation about going open with uh, data, yep. with, with APIs, and it's hard to convince people that there's a business case of that in terms of a commercial sense. I'm wondering if you came up against that blocker and how you overcame it. Yeah, I mean, of course, and I think... Um, so I did a lot of that at the powerhouse as well, and I think what was interesting at the Cooper Hewitt was actually we made that part of our brand. So when kind of the museum re... Redid its brand, kind of you know, strategy, and turned into a library of design resources. It was much easier to say that open sourcing fitted that than not, and, and it, that was what made it work. And I think the, the release of the customer data now is a pretty interesting step. You know, it's it's like the next phase of that, um, but it's very hard if the brand isn't tending that way as well. Um, in the public sec sector, um, I was also on the Gov2 ta task force 2008, many years ago. Uh, but the open access stuff, that is, has, it's got to be driven by you know, mission and val uh, values. And if it isn't, it's very difficult to do. So I'd say tr you know, you've got to try to sell that. Selling the open access stuff on its own, it's, it's, it might work initially, but it's not, it's not sustainable afterwards. It's got to be part of the brand. 
Hi, Seb. Thanks. Thanks for your presentation. Um, I think it's absolutely fantastic that you, you know you're, you're opening up all of this data to curators and and the public. Um, I'm just wondering um, what happens to those items in a collection that don't get collected, and the data clearly shows that no one's interested in them. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting because um, uh, you know I think. Um, we we had expected to find the the hero of objects of the museum. So the museum's phys, physical spaces could only show about a thousand things at once, and so those interactive tables uh, also had another about fifteen thousand things on them. So two hundred two hundred and ten thousand objects in the collection. So already the things you see in a museum are a very slim slice of the stuff. But we knew that there would be the, her the, the, her the heroic things that everybody knew, the Eames chair and, you know, all that sort of stuff, the, the normal, the classics, right? Um, we also knew that there would be the things that were obvious when you came in the door and you saw, and you would be drawn to collect those. But actually the, the data showed that that wasn't the case, that in fact the most collected thing for the first six months was this... Um, a paper cut that was hidden away on the second second floor, and it was a Noah's Ark paper cut, and it was was beautiful, but you didn't know what it was until you got really close to it. So in fact, what we found was that um, it wasn't the things we thought, and it built a conf it built a confidence and a nuance to uh, the way the curators started to think about the things people wanted to see, and it started to also help us um, begin to ask those things. Why do people, why are people interested in these things and, and more interested in collecting this? So, so they might want the Eames chair as well, but they don't collect it. They're like, well, I know about that, but I want to know about this. So it's began to sort of change and, 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 su and surprise us, you know. Um, so the, av the, av the average amount of objects collected by a visitor, we probably expected to be about 10 objects per visitor. That's about and the number of photos that people take of actual things. People take lots of selfies and other social photos in museums. But actually, of stuff, it's pretty low. Of just stuff, it's pretty low. But, um, so we were aiming at about 10 per visitor. It's about 30 plus per visitor. Um, and that's, that's been going up. And, and the, the team who remains there has been doing more work around trying to explore uh, what motivates collecting and what people do with those collections when they go, as well as the social piece around sharing that uh, stuff. But, but it did surprise us, and I think it was a pleasant surprise. You know, I, I think um, the curators also probably feared that it would be like this game of only showing the most obvious stuff, and that's not the pur you know, purpose of museums. Museums should be, again, su surprising you with things, but having um, what it probably tells the teams back there now is more how the building works. So there are corners in the museum that people are less likely to collect in than others, so maybe you want to put the hero things in the, in the dark corners, not in the middle of the room sort of thing. So that, again... Um, that information can now be fed back to fu fu future exhibit designers, which is what it should should be used for most mostly, I think. Yeah. Well, you're all being very nice to me down the front here. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of really interesting technical stuff, but um, the thing that stood out for me was this, um, I guess, cultural shift in the role of a design museum. Yeah. We, we said that... Um, you know, the role of the design museum is uh, for doing, not looking. That, it sounds like that was the thing that actually unlocked all of this. Yeah. Um, what was the process that you that went around, you know, that the, the, the team went around with to actually come to that conclusion that, that unlocked that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, the Cooper Hewitt have been doing great education programs for a long, long time and have been doing these public programs, public talk series about design processes. It would do design think thinking workshops with school kids and all that sort of stuff. But that was never reflected in the objects that the museum collected. So how do you collect design think thinking? Do you collect a wall of post-it notes? Who knows, right? It's kind of silly. Anyway, so, you know... Um, there was, there was not, there was a desire to um, uh, to reshape the building so it wasn't so focused on objects on display. And part of the piece that we proposed and, and then built was about building the infrastructure to enable a way that wasn't just about pretty things in cases. Um, the idea that you could explain why something is important um, in more than uh, 50 words. The 50 word, so museums have those 50 word plaques. There's pretty, there's a sort of rule set around the way those work. And I think that's been one of the things that's been really challenging for museums is they don't want to put lots of text on the walls because then it kind of sucks as an experience. That's all about reading. Uh, one of my friends you know, talks about going to an exhibit and it's like if you read all the text, you'd be reading a 50,000-word book. And you don't go to the museum to read a 50,000-word book and no, and no one reads a 50,000-word book standing up which is what you're doing in a museum, right? So, so as, a, as, as a design tool, those wall plaques kind of suck. Uh, but what we had done by introducing the pen uh, was to enable that, inf that, inf that information to be uh, time, time kind of shifted in a way that was somewhat more elegant than just go look at it later, later on the website. Um, I think that opened the door for that. There's a lot more to do. I think there's a lot of problems with sending people to a website with more stuff after, afterwards. It's taken the social bit out of it. It'd be great if you and I were sitting around talking about the design of this laptop while we're actually in front of it. That would be the ideal situation. Um, so how do we get to that? How do we give you enough stuff? How do we give you enough prompts in the ex exhibition at sp space itself to, in, to, in, to sort of engender and encourage those, con those conversations while you're in the space but give you enough hooks to, to explore further. I think the videos, putting the videos up online was, was sort of probably, um, you know, that was one thing we'd done at Powerhouse as well, but I think at Cooper Hewitt actually became the tipping point that kind of people realised it then. They were like, well, we spend all this money and time making these videos and Seb, you're saying no one actually watches them in the galleries? And I'm like, yeah, let's go visit all these museums around New York and let's actually watch how, how many people actually watch this video from beginning to end. And, like, no one does. Like, no one. People just sort of go, oh, yeah, it's wallpaper. It's nice that there's a thing move, move, moving around. But the informational con content there is just evaporates. You know, if you go to... So I went to the Jurassic World exhibit up at... Melbourne Museum the other day and my son was really interested in watching all the video screens more than the animatronics in fact no one else was looking at the video screens it's like oh yeah wallpaper nice just animatronic big thing you know which is good but you know it, it then asks well why are you doing the informational bit is the informational bit there to make it feel more muse museum-y and educational but then it's not working if no one's actually looking at it and using it the context for absorbing that information is wrong or you've designed the phys physical space to not give people the tools that they need to consume that information appropriately 
So there's a lot of stuff around that. There's a lot of, you know, and I think this was trying to nudge the museum forward a bit in think, breaking that um, kind of the norms in museums of this label text that's there for like a couple of visitors who know what it means and can understand. If you go to an art museum and you read those, it's like, what the hell do they mean, right? They're, they're written in code, and they're purposely written in code. They're not for the average visitor. But then they take up a lot of space. So, you know, we were just trying to prose opportunities to create new, op- new opportunities around that. And, you know, this is, a, this is a museum with a very small staff. So only, only 75 staff. My team, there were five of us, right? Um, and so we had to build the infrastructure so when those curators were writing their 50 words... Those 50 words were not just being stuck on the wall, they were also on the web. They're making that video, it's not just there, it's also on the web, it's also in all these other places. So really op- optimising and designing those um, content creation paths as well. Um, but yeah, it's a work in progress. If, if you get to uh, new, uh, new York, you'll get to see the new, the new iterations of that. But I think the pen as a device has really changed the way people use that space, which is asking and forcing the staff there now to keep adapting and to keep going with, OK, well, what, what, if you've given people a pen now, what should we do with the rest of the museum? Which is a good place to be. Up here. Cool. Um, thank you very much. That was a great talk. And I just wanted to say I'm very jealous about your consent to try, not consensus, and I would love to get that on my future projects. Um, just a quick question about how many of the pens were being returned. Oh, like, okay, so, so the School of Visual Arts piece that we did um, was premised on the, this was done a month before we launched the pen, right? And it was like, everybody's going to steal the pens. They're really desirable, they feel nice, and if you tried them on your phone, they work on your phone too. So yes, I could use them out of the museum, that'd be cool. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, you know it's like we have to design a security clasp to put on them so that alarm goes off at the door and all that and designing that you wouldn't believe that the um, getting those tags to fit the pen and be moulded with the right you know through the manufacturing process was harder than making the pen itself right so all the things are like well you want it to look look like this but the manufacturing methods for that is going to melt the tag inside it so it's not going to work as a security tag like oh my god anyway so we expected to lose a lot and in fact I think they've lost 10 in like over a year. So it's because, again, the thing that the School of Visual Arts graduate students said was make that onboarding process one, the transaction of giving someone a pen, being about trusting them with an object that they care about. And they actually suggested holding the person, touching the person and giving it to them. So it's like a gift, a loan gift. Now, the touching piece in New uh, New York is, is kind of challenging for a lot of people, right? Did you wash your hands? Like, you know, it's kind of weird, right? But it was a really interesting one and it really got those front of house staff, those visitor services staff to um, be very focused on um, saying you've come to a special place and we're trusting you with this thing. Give it back when you come out. We're trusting you. And it worked. And so it was sort of designing for positive behaviour rather than designing for the worst case scenario. But building the human infrastructure around that to make that possible. I think the touching thing would have worked better, actually. But it totally would have freaked New Yorkers out. It would have freaked me out as well. Yeah, it was was, was kind of creepy. No, don't do that. 
That was just a brilliant presentation Cheers. of design on design on design on design. So thank you very much for Thanks, sharing with us. Cool. Cheers. We hope you liked this presentation from Service Design 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.